Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatik sitting here with Aaron Cameron, my uh, beloved co-host. Our, uh, our, our guest today is uh, Ike Alaferis, Senior Managing Director, Institutional Property Advisors, a division of Marcus and Millichap. I met Ike a number of years ago out in Ottawa. He's got a very uh, storied history in, in the brokerage market. I think he made his bones out in Ottawa, but has since expanded to truly national scope in terms of his views. So we're excited to have him on today. I always like speaking to people that can think of Canada holistically. You know, it's while real estate's a, a local business, everything impacts everything is worth paying attention to. So guys like this are invaluable. Ike, welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. So I'm not going to put you on the spot too much for the storied history and brokerage, but we do want to do uh, your background, how you got to where you are today. So if you can give us the three or four minute version of your background in real estate, you know, where- Or if it click. takes 10, it's or okay. 10. Yeah, yeah, no. Like, <laughs> I mean, if you want to crack a beer and we'll tell some, you know, some great <laughs> yeah. Ike stories, then yeah. uh, that'd be fun too. But uh, well, then the lines uh, are open if you want to call in. And- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, listen, uh, you know, my career is uh, over 30 years now in the industry. Started off uh, with the local commercial group, very strong local commercial group in Ottawa, known as Regional. Regional is a well-known entity still developing in the Ottawa market and being very active, in fact. So I started my career with them. I worked with them for 10 years, and then I was able to uh, join forces with my partners, uh, Nick Pantieris, Steve Lerner. Sam Firestone and Luigi Caparelli on the property management side. And we started a company called Prime Corp. That was a little over 22 years ago. And we developed that platform, started mainly in Ottawa. We opened offices in Montreal and in Toronto. We built our brand nationally, although we're predominantly doing transactions in Eastern Canada. We were successful in transacting a little over five, six billion dollars during the tenure of the company. And then we were cut. Uh, the eye of uh, Marcus and Millichap, uh, US. They're the largest brokerage firm in the United States and publicly traded on uh, on NASDAQ uh, or in, oh no, New York Stock Exchange, sorry. And so they came in and they wanted to buy our company. Uh, we made a deal about three and a half years ago. Was this unsolicited? Did they catch it by surprise or is it? Uh, uh, it, it was. We'd spoken to them a few years earlier. We had a couple of other groups that had come to us as well. So I think there was a little bit of a rumor mill that we might be available, but we weren't really looking to sell. In fact, I didn't even want to sell. But my partners, you know, convinced me that it was probably a good thing to do. And, uh, you know, looking at things now, we're really pleased. The culture of uh, the Marcus platform, the way they work with their groups, their teams, their markets, exceptional. Their professionalism and their market share that they control in the United States is unbelievable. And, uh, you know, uh, we're building the brand rapidly in Canada. Our Western office is, uh, you know, Brad uh, Gingrich in Western Canada and his group with Paul and Braden and uh, Jane. And then James out in Vancouver now. We have uh, the boys in Montreal. So the platform is rapidly growing and taking a strong presence in the Canadian market. And that was one of the things that we were really excited about. So today we're extremely happy to be part of the IPA Marcus uh, brand. And it's been working extremely well for us. So we've done about $4 billion since we've taken over in addition. So we're really pleased with the transaction volume and where we've taken the company. Before we get into you know, the general conversation here, again, we've got to update stamp it because it, it's material right now. Everything, everything's moving so quickly. But May 25th today... And we're 26. Oh, okay. I've lost a day. 
Short week this week. May 26th, so interest rates have come up, come down, come up, come down. And we're going to get into conversations about what's transpiring in the marketplace, particularly apartments in the GTA Ottawa. So there's the hook if you're, you know, if you're interested in that, stay tuned. But before we get there, I'm just really interested about your perspective, you know, coming from a small brokerage, now joining, you know, what the largest brokerage in North America, but competing in a Canadian market where you're not the largest. I think you're, would you be the fifth largest then behind the other four largest? And are I mean, you talking just, about in Canada? Just now? brokerages, yeah. Yeah, I, I, look, I think, you know, there's five, six groups right in Canada that we're, you know, sort of on the competitive platform with. And, you know, we're feeling that that traction is there now. Sure. Well, you've got the, I mean, having that Marcus Millichap banner help so much, yeah, right? 100%. Uh, and are you, are you catching up? Like, is that like, is the is it world domination? Is it the objective as it always is, right? <laughs> Isn't everybody's yeah. objective? <laughs> yeah, listen, I mean, we want to be competitive. We want to make a difference and we want to increase our market share. And we've been very successful at doing that now. We've grown probably 200% year over year. So uh, we're looking at, we're already at 200% for this year. So uh, we're really pleased at the growth. And what yeah. is the comparative advantage? Like what is the selling? Like, I mean, sorry, but we'll get to the next. I'm just, I'm really finding it's interesting from your the competitive yeah, advantages. Yeah, well, from your perspective where you've been in from a smaller shop to the big shop and just yeah. like, you, you know the industry, you've been around for so long. So when you're sitting there and someone else is talking to, I won't even put their names out there, but you know, some of the other major firms. Sure. How are you telling that? potential seller, no, I'm, I deserve your listing because. Well, the biggest thing that, and the biggest difference is it's a true collaborative group. We really know what everybody else is doing in our shop. And that's, that's a real unique difference. I mean, a lot of the groups tout it, but they don't really have it actively occurring in their organizations. Meaning like daily conversations, Absolutely. weekly Like we updates. know it's, we know what all the guys are working on, you know, in our shop and we really collaborate. And that gives you a lot of information and intel to be able to deliver a better message to our clients. And that element in itself sets us apart. And it was one of the things that we had before as a smaller organization. I mean, Nick always knew what I was doing. I knew what Nick was doing, you know, where the other organizations, I mean, there'd be Jim in downtown office and Don in downtown in North York office, and they had no clue what they're doing. And they're like competing for the same business in some cases. Completely and, siloed. Yeah, yeah, completely siloed. And I mean, listen, that model does work clearly, but you know, we like that because our business is about relationships and, and this business is about real estate, real estate, no matter what you do. And that's our proudest moment in our company when we were Prime Corp. And that evolved very, very naturally into the Marcus IPA brand. And that evolution and that element of using those relationships and contacts and then relying on our information is key, right? I mean, one of the worst things to happen in our business is, you know, people just giving out information that isn't accurate, right? So, I mean, one of the things we're proud of and we continue to embrace that is, you know, we're giving good market intel or best market intel that we can to our platform and our clients. So that makes, that sets us apart from the others. Our relationships are very deep. I mean, I always, you know, one of my lines is always, I pick up the phone, nobody has to ask who's calling. As soon as I open my mouth, they know it's me. So, I mean, and, you know, you know, I can call them the mores of the world. I can call, the, you know, and, and those are the things that you develop over time. And again, I mean, that's, that's the big relationship card, right? So we should have skipped your intro and just had you start talking. Yeah. Yeah, guess who, who this is. is. Yeah. Maury Taz being the founder of First National, just in case. <laughs> Ike's name dropping now. Yeah. 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 Well, I like his wine. Yeah. Who you have to say that too. Do, don't you? I yeah. do, I do. He supports our uh, Dory, annual events. Dory, he doesn't so, listen. He doesn't listen to this. He doesn't. So. It's like, we'll make sure he hears it. <laughs> so, if, if I'm doing the math correctly, 
In 22 years, prime court, you went through five or six billion. And then the three and a half under this yeah. new platform, you've gone through four. Of course, you know, values would be a big part of that. Sure. 22 years ago, you know, a $10 million sale was probably half of, uh, you know, a downtown block somewhere. And now can barely get you uh, a 20 unit apartment building in, in Vancouver market, you know, things like that. But yeah. what was the accelerator then? Because the, the last, sounds like the last couple of years have been pretty yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of things. One, the new platform definitely improved, uh, you know, the institutional approach to things. But I think a lot of the fundamentals in the market have changed. I mean, if you track deal sizes, and you guys probably do that. You're going to see that the consolidation has really created larger deal transactions in all sectors. So I think that- A lot of portfolio that, sales. Correct. So that's what I'm exactly what I'm referring to. So what you're seeing is a lot of larger deals, the continued consolidation in all asset classes, you know, probably led by multifamily. You know, we're seeing bigger and bigger deals getting done on a more common basis where, you know, in the early years, Prime Corp, it was deal by deal one at a time. 50, 100 units, 200 units, you know, 50,000 foot office tower or uh, industrial buildings individually. Now it's all portfolios and large consolidation of the companies that are doing that is creating larger deals. So that hockey stick, so to speak, of activity is definitely correlated with that for sure. And of course, values have continued to increase. Yeah, on, so, in addition to, I mean, yeah. like, notionally working at First National, I remember we did an $80 million deal. This is like a decade ago thinking, wow, that's a massive, massive deal. deal yeah. And now we just did a $400 million deal and you almost go, yeah, okay, that's big, right? Like <laughs> it's so weird. Was that my deal? Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, but it does, like it, you just, you almost get desensitized yeah. to how, just how much larger. And those, that was, those are all both portfolios, but it's just, you know, I, I, in addition to NI growth, cap rate compression and portfolio distribution, it's yeah. just grown exponentially. I mean, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny because, you know, I got so excited when I did my first deal over $10 million. I just thought that was enormous, right? $13 million. And, uh, you know, wow. And, you know, now we're $100 million. It's just normal, <laughs> you know? So... It's definitely interesting to see, but the dynamics of the market have changed. So that that you know those fundamentals are indi- you know indicators on what why that that growth levels there. So I mean, in the U.S., they talk about velocity of transactions, right? So you know, I think we did sixty billion dollars in deals last year if they're under the Marcus IPA platform in the United States. You it's know, nuts. their velocity of transactions down there is just so fundamentally different. You know, you get questions from the, you know, we're on the U.S. calls and on the national. So, you know, uh, you know, how What's many, the how total many? Canadian market? Can you do the comparison? They, Marcus themselves did uh, 60 billion. Yeah. What is all of Canada? Uh, we haven't really, uh, you know, measured it because I, I don't think it's fair because they've got a, you know, they've got too much of a, a too many years behind them. So, you know, th- that tenure gives them a little bit more market share. But I mean, Look, I used to use the 10 fact, which right. are, you know, 10 times for the US, right? But I know it's sort of closer to 100. You know, <laughs> yeah, so, it's crazy. You know, well, the 1031 exchange in the US and things like that really change things up for them. Well, People for anybody not familiar with that 1031 exchange, means you can essentially trade properties without incurring taxation on it. I mean, unless I'm missing any part of it, which obviously makes it easier to get in and out of asset classes. You don't have to consider taxes, which would be a big advantage. I mean, people get stuck in properties for that reason that maybe aren't performing optimally or aren't ideal for their portfolio, but transitioning out is just so painful they get stuck. Yeah. So yeah, so that, of course that would facilitate more transactions, which is great for a guy in brokerage, of course. Right. And so it's a little bit of a different landscape when it comes to that. 
I guess you have a personal experience. I've been down in the States before at, you know, at real estate events and you'll just, you know, you're talking to people as you would here and they'll say, oh, do you lend uh, down in the States? You know, I've got, uh, you know, a $600 million deal I'm working on. And that'll happen three times per trip in the space of four or five days. Whereas in Canada, you can rattle around, you know, the, the various depths events of the here. convention centers. Yeah. yeah. And you're not, you're not running into multiple deals that are north of uh, half a billion well, dollars. Well, and being yeah. shopped around. Like if yeah. Yeah. those $600 million deals, they're kept quiet and all of a sudden you just hear about it on Renex, right? Like that's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, because two pension funds took a swing at it and that was it. Yeah, I know. It's a different world down there. Sure. Yeah. That's uh, market? Market, yeah. I mean... Uh, That's why Ike's here, to tell yeah. us that everything's going to be okay. He's got his <laughs> finger firmly on the pulse of uh, the Canadian market. So that uh, is where we're going to go next. We were chatting a little bit before we hit the uh, record button here you know, on this topic, you know, Ike's already alluded to it. He spends a lot of time talking to people on the phone, really connected into decision-making taking place you know, right now, you know, if we're to, if we're trying to look at data, for example, transactions have to close, that can take months. We won't have hard numbers for quite a while. So right now in a shifting market, this is uh, about as good as it gets for kind of real time info. Can you talk about, you know, any of the recent conversations you had from some of the bigger players in terms of how they're reacting to interest rates going up, inflation, how they're reacting to construction costs going up if they're involved in that? What's the sentiment overall? Well, listen, I mean, you know, the obvious is there. Increasing interest rates, increased costs. I mean, those are all things that are fundamentals that are, you know, impacting IRRs, their yield analysis. So guys are taking a much more pointed approach to look at each deal. Strategically, I think we're seeing some changes. There's, you know, being some shifts, i.e. you're seeing some of the uh, developers sort of look at deals and say, you know what, if we don't have to do this deal right now, we might just pass right now and put it too many, it on too the many shelf. uncertainties. Yeah. So, you know, just sit back and wait. But the sentiment in the market, the market excitement, as I like to use in my discussions, is still there. Like, there's still a lot of demand for activity, still a lot of demand from the buyer pool. They're not getting too discouraged with the interest rates. You know, a lot of the groups have seen the cycles before, not, not too, you know, not too uh, panicked about it, as, uh, as we said earlier. You know, I don't think there is that panic in the marketplace. Guys are much, much better capitalized right now. There's so much capital in the world still. Uh, so I think those fundamentals are going to keep the market quite strong overall. I think the buyers are going to use the information to try to negotiate better deals. <laughs> you know, are they going to get the better deals? Is yet to be determined, I think. I've, you know, got sensitivity to deals a little bit more now than I've had before just because of these What things. do you mean by sensitivity? I think guys are looking deals a little bit more carefully. It's probably the way to look at it. And they'll price things a little bit differently if there's some inconsistencies in a deal or some extra capital. They might try to price that in a little differently than they did before. I think, you know, cap rates naturally are going to are trying to get pushed up with the rates going up, you know, you know, as they follow each other. But I still think there's enough demand in the marketplace where, you know, maybe we'd have 20 or 30 buyers at a table for a deal. You know, maybe we'll have 10 that are going to be competitive. And, you know, they may keep the pricing pretty close to where it was, if not where it was. So there is some thought that pricing is going to adjust, but I think we're going to see the demand still keep the pricing is strong enough because the supply is still not there. And frankly, what's going to be happening over the next little while is we're going to see a diminishing supply in a lot of sectors where a lot of guys that were looking at building or, you know, maybe they were building four buildings. Now they're halfway through their first two and they say, you know, we'll save the other two for later. So that supply content that was coming in on the new side is going to definitely be lower in, you know, 23, 24 coming next 24 months. So, I mean, so I have the supply and demand side aside, 
let's just focus on the interest rate cap rate relationship still. Because we've had this conversation now a bunch in the last month or two as it's super become, topical. <laughs> become very apparent that interest rates are up. Again, it's May 26th and it, you know, conventional interest rates all in coupons are about four and a half. CMC insured all in interest rates are up three and a half today. Mm-hmm. They were almost up to four and five. So they're down 50 basis points from their high two weeks ago. But I mean, who knows where they are in 20 minutes from now. Right. Historically, spreads of cap rates to interest rates commercial real estate wide. I'm not talking about apartments or anything else. It's about 100 basis points. Let's so just plus or minus. Sure. That's not true today. By no. any stretch of the imagination. Are you seeing that pressure? Are your clients having that conversation? And where's the equilibrium that actually makes sense? Because you talk about capital. I really do think that there's so much capital and liquidity in the marketplace that that is that downward pressure on that delta between interest rates and cap rates. Yeah. But what is the number that truly makes sense in that new environment? Listen, I think, you know, negative leverage is always a challenge. Uh, you know, when the investment community is out there, keep in mind, like there's a lot of drivers in the market, institutional, pension and private client, right? And all of them look at things a little bit differently, you know, and everybody's looking for that opportunistic buy. So like I said earlier, I mean, the, the interest rate fluctuations or increases in this case are going to be used by the buyer pool to try to get better deals. But there's going to be buyers out there that are going to sort of look at those deals and say, you know what? Yeah, it impacts me a little, but not that much. You know, so maybe we, we get a neutral where, where we had positive leverage before. I think, you know, we're, we're sort of getting closer to a neutral spread as opposed to a, a negative one. This question is for Adam. Mm. Ike's client shows up buying a property. It's a three and a half percent interest rate and a two and a half percent cap rate. What are you doing? From an underwriting standpoint? Well, I, I mean, I, my question, yeah. and this is just, again, I have no idea, even though we're lenders, do you even entertain that? Are you looking at going, wait yeah, a minute, can I, mean, I lend on this? Well, you'd, you'd have, we have a discussion this recently. You'd have to assume that they're banking, of course, on rapid rental growth. So maybe in that case, you structure a bridge loan because their thesis, of course, they're going to see some huge jump in, uh, in NOI. So then you can base it on future rents. Of course, you're not getting the benefit of CMHC financing now, but if you are calculating it just on debt service and income, but, you're not going to love the leverage. You're going to need to cut it. And, my, and, and you know, first national yeah. very pragmatic lender. I'm yeah, sure there are some lenders yeah. that go, not. I'm not touching that. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you guys are realistic. Hurts, which hurts again the purchase power, right? But in all the structures, at some point, someone's got to cut a large equity check. That's the in all the variations of way we can but slice and dice. I, it. I can yeah. give you comps right now from two years ago or three years ago. Where the, oh, where the cap rate was lower than the well, interest rate. Oh, for yeah. sure. Oh, uh, hey, no, no. Okay. I've seen, I've seen. So three, that's going to continue. I've seen three quarter caps, right? Correct. Be, but again, because rents were half market, and it was in a strong rising revenue growth segment of the marketplace, right? So well, I, you can I, wrap your head around it. Yeah, well I, uh, well, I think, you know, one of the concerns, like, you know, 12, 16, 18 months ago was, you know, there's a lot of supply coming into the market. How's that going to keep rental growth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now we're talking about supply diminishing again. <laughs> and the rental growth has still been there. Like even through COVID, I mean, I'm talking to people and, you know, we're getting our market comps and we're seeing rental growth, you know, that, that's yeah. still there and getting stronger again. I've heard very recently, the last kind of four or five, six weeks, a lot of positive news on recent leasing, jumping up in a lot of markets across. And the piling country. on that, income levels are rising also across right. the board, which, you know, of course, is a direct tie to rents. So there's so many market fundamentals that are extremely positive right now that are keeping things buoyant, as I put it. You know, the capital in the market is definitely keeping pricing buoyant. Okay. Are we going to see an adjustment? Of course. I think we're going to see a, a, a modest adjustment. I like not the a, honesty. Not a, Thank a, you for the honesty. Not yeah, a major yeah. adjustment. I think a modest adjustment, yeah. I think. Now, that's today with what we've seen. I mean, if you go up another 100 to 200 basis points, that's another discussion. But real time, right now, today, a building that somebody wanted a month and a half ago at 20 million bucks, would he still pay $20 million? And I think that's the real question you guys want answered, right? And I think the answer to that question today is still yes. I think they'll still pay the 20 million bucks today. Now, will they pay that in 
two weeks, three weeks, you know, depending <laughs> yeah, on what happens. Go, yeah. That could change. But I think the pricing change hasn't really kicked in yet. You alluded to it earlier. I mean, we're always lagging with the information, right? So, you know, we're going to see things go under contract today. They're not firm yet. So, the, you know, they firm up based on, you know, where their debt's going to be, et cetera. We still have calls. I mean, Adam's on the front line on the sales side. We still get calls from clients saying, hey, I just went long a, a transaction. We talked in January. I want that 2% interest rate or 2 and a half interest rate. And so they're not, it, I mean, it just hasn't made its way through, through, the, yeah. through the system all the way. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's go out of the filter, which really surprised me for something as relevant as uh, is interest rates. I mean, obviously, Aaron and I's world revolves around that, but yeah. you think that everybody who borrows on properties, which is a huge chunk of the market, would be on top of this? Well, another comment. I mean, I had some meetings today. I mean, one of the comments today, uh, you know, we were speaking specifically about you know market conditions right now and the metrics, and the guys, uh, you know, were sitting there and they're saying, "Listen, we're thirty-year guys. We're looking at long-term horizons here. We're not getting fussed too much." You know, the fundamentals have not changed. The growth in the market, we haven't had immigration for two years. When immigration comes back and all the activity starts to get back up to snuff, I mean, you know, it's going to be a good time in the real estate world. So there's a lot of, you know, forward thinking guys that are looking long term and feeling very confident about what's coming down the pipe. And one other factor I want to ask you about, people sat in the sidelines, you know, March 2020, everybody kind of, you know, pens down for however long they deemed uh, appropriate. And then kind of going to 2021, people are making up for the time that they sat in the sidelines. Is that sentiment still around? Are groups still feel like they're behind where they were planning on be from a volume perspective? Is there any of that demand created just from having sat out during part of COVID? Yeah, I think that's very true. I think the guys that sat back, they go, shoot, you know, our coffers got a lot bigger than we than we expected, and we really got to play some capital. I mean, you know, my, uh, you know, the private equity guys that get getting get money, they're they're saying no to their investors. They we want to give you five hundred million dollars or two hundred million dollars, and then you know, I'm hearing the story. We just tell them we, we can't place it fast enough for you, so we don't want the money. Again, that great goes back to the capital that's around today is just tremendous, and you know, that's a non-issue. Where to place the money is still the bigger problem. Well, I mean, that's kind of, that is, I guess, the challenge, right? Is, okay, great. The capital is going to be, it's patient to a certain degree. It's eager to get deployed, right? Yep. Sure. But at some point, I mean, if, again, just using the back to the cap rates, if cap rates are three and a half and the interest rates three and a half, wouldn't it be better to go and buy like triple B bonds? Because you've got yeah. the liquidity, it'll wait it all out. Like why deploy it into real estate? You don't have to, right? Because like, they still believe in the growth in the market, right? They still believe in the future. I mean, we talked about rental growth. You know, if there's those elements are still there on a transaction, it'll get the demand. Right. So if they believe there's rental growth, they believe there's some other factors that, uh, you know, intensification of sites. I mean, there's been a creation of new elements in the business, right? Industrial has, has transformed. It's transformed into industrial retail, right? This new phenomenon. I mean, $15, $17 rents in Montreal. 20, 20 in yeah. Toronto now. Yeah. Like it's Unthinkable nuts. just a yeah. minute ago. Three, yeah. three to $4 million an acre for land for industrial. I mean, the space has exploded, right? But it's actually created a new sector. It's actually a new sector. I mean, the traditional industrial is not what's growing. It's the new industrial that's growing. So the 80 you know, foot clear. Yeah. So, you know, five-story industrial buildings. I mean, 10 years ago, they would have looked at you with three heads if you said that, you know, but it's alive and well and growing rapidly in the, right across the country, right? So, I mean, there's so many things that are changing within the markets and, you know, retail, service retail uh, proved to be tremendously strong through COVID, COVID-proof, you know, not recession-proof, but COVID-proof. So, you know, grocery and, and service center retails extremely strong. People thought even the big box centers... I think it fared a lot better than people thought they would. Mm -hmm. 
so a lot of the news that was initially negative, I think, turned quite positive. Retail is alive, not yeah, dead. Right? Correct. Yeah, we, I mean, we had a recent interview. I don't know if it's been out yet or coming out after this, but so I won't reference it. But big box or experiential retail is almost, what, 50% up from pre-COVID levels, right? right. I mean, talk about post-COVID behaviors. Yeah. People are going out, wanting to go to malls, wanting to visit brick and mortar stores. They're tired of sitting in their house ordering off of Amazon. Like, sure. Literally, they're just sick of it. Yeah, and you know, the suburban phenomenon, as I call it, is a big thing, a, you know, big impact on that. And it's changed things. The suburbs have really been revitalized through COVID, right? So those markets have grown dramatically. Now we're seeing things sort of stabilize. And, you know, the downtown core and the jury's still out. Like I said, you know, you've got, Government cities that are occupying, you know, massive amounts of office space. You know, what's going to happen with the office? Are they all still working from home almost permanently? I mean, a federal government is still uh, virtually working. I know CMHC, who we deal with, which is federal government, I think they've announced permanently like their offices are no longer open. Like they can still go if they'd like, but yeah. You're encouraged. So, I would, so when, I would shake Otto to Otto to his core in the yeah, office market there. Yeah. So I mean, look, I think I think these things are concerning, and then, you know, if you're if you're a major office landlord, you're going to be looking at that. But I think some of the fundamentals are there. That you know, we're always trying to look at you know reinventing the categories, right? So one of the things, well, you had a hundred people in your office, and you needed X amount of square footage for those hundred people. Now we're going back to well. Everybody wants an enclosed office. Forget about the bullpen anymore. So all the space requirements are changing for less people. So that, you know, so how's that going to impact things? Well, you know, we had 100,000 employees, you know, in, in one, you know. For, yeah, for, now you need more space for, for less, less people, people, right? So we may have less people physically working, but we may still need a good, a good amount of space. So I think that kind of thing's going to happen and sort of find its way through the markets. You know, I mean, downtown Toronto, downtown Montreal, I mean, you know, private sector looking at things differently, but I think the office market, you know, the future, you know, where people were, were talking doom and gloom. I, again, I don't think the doom and gloom is there. I think there's going to be some reinventing of, of this type of space and we're going to see some very creative ideas coming down the pipe and, you know, going back to, you know, private offices, I think is going to be interesting. And, you know, I'm hearing that more and more from well, it's quality clients. of air too, right? The, yep. the well buildings. Oh, so yeah. not bringing back smoking rooms. No, things like that. that's, okay. not coming, that's not coming back. <laughs> and, you know, we, we have sort of going down the line for, you know, you have this stuff that's been happening that's really been growing the market and keeping things buoyant. Intensification of sites. I mean, trying to find ways to supply more product on all asset classes, but, you know, multifamily, obviously, mostly. Uh, you know, the intensification of sites, you know, where everybody's seeing what's going on. You know, Rio can everybody, you know, wow. every one of their centers has got a new tower on the corner. <laughs> you know, so I mean, that you know, it's not new. You know, this is reality. But again, it's a transformation of the business, right? Well, we so. interviewed Ugo Bazzari from Hazelview. And I asked him, kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know, how many retail plazas are you buying up for the intensification? He kind of looked at me and went, shh. Yeah. Because it's just, it is. <laughs> exactly. like, there are lots of apartment developers looking at retail going, wait a minute, like, there's a great location, great dirt. You yeah. know, I get the retail for sort of holding income. And then now I can develop like, sort of, you know, a whole bunch of units. Yeah. I mean, it's not a secret. I mean, you know, the, the, the retail guys never knew who the multifamily guys were. <laughs> all of a sudden, they're all best friends. Yeah. So it's very interesting to see what's happening. But it makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, you know, your, your retail centers are there. You're intensifying the site. You're creating a stronger residential base right over your retail. So, you know, oh, the, the retail... Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's just, just makes sense on all levels. Just right? don't buy Humbertown. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Google Humbertown if you want to know what the joke. And uh, know that Aaron and I live near it. That's the, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we talked about interest rates and the impact. You know, one of the variables that we can't 
not cover, you know, obviously interest rates are up as a result of an inflationary environment. That inflation has an impact on expense line items mm-hmm. also. And so are those conversations occurring? Because I mean, that's one yeah, of those course. things. I mean, it, expenses have been really stable for the last decade, right? Yep. Taxes kind of pluck away at 3%. Insurance took off in 2020. Insurance took off, but I mean, insurance yeah. is always a minor line item. It's still a minor line item, but even though it's, it's doubled it's, it's, or almost yeah. tripled, I mean, it used to be 150 a unit, now it's 500 a unit versus taxes has always been 1,500 to 2,000 a unit. So right. it's still... I mean, comparatively, it's, it's small, but it's up. But now you've got utilities that are rising. I mean, I think cities are catching up to the fact that valuations have doubled, yeah. yet the assessment values are still <laughs> legacy values. What kind of things or conversations are you having and how is that impacting the market? Well, listen, I mean, that simply just gets priced into the model, right? So just like you do it on your debt side, you're pricing all that into your debt calculations, right? So the buyers are doing the same thing. The sellers are doing the same thing. We're showing them the model that really is realistic because the buyers are going to buy realistic models. And you know, you, you put down the numbers and the numbers have changed. So where your percentage ratios are going to go up and that's just part of doing your analytics. The biggest one, utilities though, has that made it through well, to the numbers yet? Well, efficiencies, kinda... efficiencies by a lot of the groups, right, is a big thing now. So there's two ways. I mean, expenses go up. Great. Well, what do we do? Well, how do we minimize those expenses? So all these plans, you know, these programs that, that, that you can work with that can minimize those expense numbers, right? Uh, downloading of expenses, obviously, right to the tenant is becoming more and more popular. So getting rid of your utility costs and, you know, trying to do that. Well, yeah, but doesn't that impact rents? Sure. Yeah, because everybody looks at the all-in number, but it's kind of funny. You look at the rent number and you go, well, you got to pay your own utilities. It's a lot easier than adding the 200 bucks to the rent. <laughs> it's just, you know, that's just human nature, right? When people are scanning Kijiji and they see that yeah. 1800 is all they think about. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. So, I mean, you know, but at the end of the day, the guy's got to make enough money to pay his rent, including his utilities. And Yeah, no matter what, it's the same, amount of, same amount of The accountability is, is, is yeah. the biggest incentivization yeah. you can have to slow people down in terms of wasting utilities. Right. It is phenomenal. And then on the retrofit side, of course, there's a fair bit of low-hanging fruit on, you know, 1960s build apartments yeah. they've not had any anything significant done in a long time you can put in it is still a significant capex I mean don't be wrong you got to cut a check for it but the return on it is phenomenal and the improvement and efficiency in your building are huge correct I mean that's one of the fundamentals of the value add program for the buyer pool out there they look at the deals where can I enhance my position so I can save on my expenses where can I create some efficiencies in the building where my costs are going to change and while increasing rents and making all those changes at the same time and growing my value right so I mean those are all fundamentals that are there I mean 10 years ago 15 years ago people weren't really looking at that side of the, uh, the, equation. You know, the equation as much as we do today. And of course, uh, you know, that's becoming a big part of it, right? So if you're able to save 5% on one side before you even touch the rents, yeah. I mean, those and are that, great numbers. And it impacts your, obviously in your NOI, but yeah. your cash flow and therefore yeah. your, your debt service coverage and your loan amount. I'll shameless plug, well, not shameless, I guess, but it's funny. We did this interview four months ago, five months ago, Peter Mills of Wise Meter Solutions, mm-hmm. pre-inflation going rampant, uh, but him just talking about this exact thing. Yeah. And to Adam's point, it was that incentivization that he's really, he's got, he's digitized this and now can give that information back to the tenant. So you're downloading it, but now you're going to the tenant saying, look, like here's how much you're spending and here's where you rank in your business or your building and here's how you can save and more here's money. How I can the, save the, the gamification. Money, right? yeah. The yeah. game of humans love competing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's out there. And I, I suspect, I mean, we probably have probably have Peter Mills back on and be like, so you're tripled your business in six <laughs> oh, months. Oh, for so, sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. For sure. I mean, and, and there's new players in the market that are bringing all sorts of new concepts that are creating those efficiencies and bringing those expense costs down. Obviously, certain costs 
can't be controlled, i.e. the tax department. Everybody worries about that. So, I mean, you know, it's a big fundamental, especially when you're selling legacy assets where, you know, tax bills have really been quite modest and never changed because the property never changed hands, right? So, you know, it's become a bigger discussion when I'm doing my performance now and talking to my buyers saying, listen, we've got to price in the tax increase. And those numbers are not, in, you know, not, insignif- not insignificant at all. So, you know, we have to really uh, be careful with uh, how we do all that. You know, I mean, you see huge range. We'll see some we have to pause and go. That can't be right. Yeah, yeah. So you guys, you guys are looking at more performance than anybody every day. So, (laughs) so you know exactly what I'm talking about. So we talked about buyer sentiment on the seller side. Is anybody pulling? listings? Do they want to wait and see? Is there maybe a rushing to market before price discovery is completed? What's the sentiment on the vendor side? Getting product into the market has always been a challenge in Canada overall. I mean, things are very carefully looked at before they, uh, they go to market. Are they going to be changing their pricing? The vendors haven't changed their pricing yet. Now, is, will they change their pricing six months from now? That's a possibility. Obviously, the desire or the need to get a transaction done is going to impact that decision. So for example, Let's say you go into market with a $50 million expectation, you know, and get to the market, the bids come in and let's say they're $40 million, they're 10 million off. Well, that's a pretty fundamental difference. And, you know, the vendor may not trade. So I would say that we probably will see some transactions not go ahead because of that, because I don't think the sellers are going to change their pricing expectations so easily. I think they're going to stay pretty strong. Is there going to be some guys that need to sell for fundamental reasons or need capital to do other things? Sure. So you may see a bit of that. So I think as we move forward, we're going to get more information. Right now, if somebody wants to do that deal, I think they're still going to have to pay the right price. And I think there's enough buyers in the market to pay the price. So well, as you said, I mean, if you go from 30 offers down to 10, does that really impact pricing? <coughs> you only need one offer. I would yeah. say that. Yeah. Or unless two guys at the table, now you've got competition. You know, it's... <laughs> yeah. I mean, so the time I'll worry is when I had zero offers, right? So, and, I, and we're not there. Yeah. We're definitely not there. And I don't think we see it on the horizon as well, so... You know, I always hate to ask for crystal ball predictions in times of change, but I am going to do that for our kind of closing thoughts here. What do you see shaking out over the next three to six months in the market? Look, I think the fundamentals that we've talked about today, you know, I think are going to just stay there. The demand's there. I think if we don't have any more shocks to the interest rates in any dramatic fashion, I think we're going to see things continue to be pretty stable and pretty active. Some of the market activity is going to change, like we said earlier, you know, maybe people won't build that extra building, maybe, you know, a few, but there's other things that are impacting that. Costs have gone up, other things. So it's not just the interest rates that are impacting that. So I don't think we're going to see anything dramatic is the bottom line. Now, if interest rates do go up, I think we're going to see some change for sure. But I think, you know, a lot of the sentiment is that they're going to see things sort of trickle back down a little bit, as we've seen just of late as well. So I think those from the future, for the next little while, to say for sure, I don't think we're going to see any drastic changes. So uh, anybody sitting on the sidelines looking to pounce, probably much like, you know, early 2020 when everybody thought they're going to be scooping deals, right. never happened. Right. We might see that again where... Yeah. I mean, it's funny, you know, that's a great comment. I get, you know, I have a few guys I call them up, but I'm just waiting for, I'm just waiting for everything to collapse and I'm going to move in. I, I've got lots of cash. I said, great. And that was, and then I call them up and I go, you know, that was... 12 years ago, we had this conversation. Yeah. I said, you must have a lot more money now. I know. Yeah. Still waiting. Still waiting. He's still waiting for that collapse. Yeah. And, so, and I, so I think that those things are just not going to happen. And I think we talked about the, the amount of capital in the markets, both private and institutional that are around, that are keeping the markets buoyant. I really believe that that's the case. So I think that that's a, that's a fundamental that we're going to see continue. But for the next little while, I don't think we're going to see any dramatic change. I think that-, that Unless rates go way up again. Unless rates go way up. 
Don't even put that out in the universe. That's well, maybe if I say it, it won't happen. I don't know. How does that work? It's the what about development that has additional headwinds? You know, with price escalations, things yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, you those are the things. More of a slowdown. Yeah, the there arena. we're seeing. We've always yeah. seen. You know, guys, like I said before, you know, guys have four deals in the pipeline, and you know, they're saying, "Look, we're going to shelf our two deals now. We're going to finish the two we've got." Yeah, and, you know, and that was before gonna, interest rates were going up, though. Yeah, this, that was, that before was supply the, chain. That oh, was well, supply chain driven. A hundred cart horse egg. Chicken, right. I don't know, but right. supply chain and interest rates, you know. Yeah. Have- I mean, those guys always never really forwarded the interest rate idea anyways, because they didn't, by the time they finished the building, they didn't know where the rates were going to be at that time to do their takeout financing anyways, right? So it's really, in my opinion, much more cost-driven. I mean, they've just seen the fundamental costs go up dramatically, you know, right across the board. So those have really impacted the uh, development guys, for sure. Now, the big companies with the long time horizons and even the privates with the long time horizons, they're not really getting deterred too much because they're there and they're putting lots of cash in. They're just turning their 30-year IR into a 35-year IR. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So I guess the people getting squeezed are likely people trying to get into the market, trying to do their first deal. They're probably getting squeezed the most with this. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I think we're going to see, there's a word called VTB. That's called a vendor take back. And Never heard in, of it before. In, Qu- it. in Quebec, it's called a balance of sale. We have to explain the uh, the differences. But something that hasn't really been around for a long time. And, you know, I, I actually have to explain the acronym to people. A VTB, you want to do try VTB on this deal? What's a VTB? <laughs> it's, it's funny, but it's true. I mean, it hasn't been in the equation lately. And I've been having this conversation, not only with smaller buyers. Well, the smaller buyers need the most help because they want that leverage, right? So, but... You know, definitely with some of the you know larger players that are talking about we can do a VTB on this deal if we you know if we bring it to market. You know, I've had that discussion. Is that just ultimately to get the proceeds that they want? Correct. Preserve that price. Yeah, to preserve the pricing. So guys that are already anticipating some resistance are, are saying, you know, we can put this in to solve the problem if there, if it is one. So it's interesting. So it's a new element in creative financing so to speak, yeah. is something that we haven't really had to do for many, many years. But I think we're going to see some of that transpiring over the next little while. Yeah. I think that's going to be alive and well just to make the deals work. But again, guys are doing that because the demand's there. They wanted to get the deals done. So that's really the big driver in the market. And, and you know, that's alive and well. And that's the fabric of our real estate business right across the board. It's keeping everything strong. You know, it's interesting. We get, you know, real estate in general as a market gets kind of dubbed as the slow mover and and we're not fast to respond. But yet when times present these types of environments, boy, we have quick solutions, right? It seems to be, keep it going forward. We, we are creative. If nothing else, we're a creative oh, yeah. group, right? Hey, listen, you know, the, the whole real estate world was built on entrepreneurial right. thinking, right? So Just problem solving. Yeah, problem solving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that works well and creativity is a big part of our business. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I, I love this conversation because it's, you know, we are in a challenging environment, but not a dire environment, I think is what I'm taking away from this. There, there's stuff going on out there. It's not rainbows and unicorns like maybe it has been for the last yeah. while, but I think we're adapting, we're being creative and we're finding solutions and it's not the world yeah. keeps turning, I guess, is what you're experiencing yeah. today on the ground. Exactly. I mean, it's not as easy as it was a little while ago. I think the, you know, the, the analytics are getting a little bit more careful and more thorough, but at the end of the day, I think People are finding the solutions to make it work. And I think we're going to see that uh, continue for the next little while, as long as we don't have any other crazy shocks. Ike, thanks very much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Thanks, Adam, for everything, as always. My beloved co-host, you said that. (laughs) And stay tuned for the after show. Great. Thanks, guys. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where Adam and I digest the conversation we just had with Ike Alaparis, recorded live in our offices in Toronto at 16 York. That was fun. 
He's uh, a lively individual. Yeah, yeah. I've known him for a number of years as I spent a fair bit of time out in Ottawa working on deals. And yeah, no, he's definitely a personality, which is, you know, great for a podcast. But, you know, he also gets uh, a lot of deals done, which is the, the other aspect we want for a podcast, which is knowledgeable. So the perfect kind of guest for what we do. He um, ended on a great high note about the Ottawa market. And we've heard that now more and more. You know, I've been throwing around Vectom. And, you know, it used to be MTL. We talk about the major Canadian markets, but I think Ottawa does deserve to be in the top six, right? Like it really is one of the six major urban centers. And I think if you talk to some of the institutional capital that sort of looks for that high quality investment, like Ottawa's in their stratosphere. Well, stability, right? I mean, that's the, you know, the big thing that people like about that market, institutional capital for a big portion of the portfolios, they like stability. So for that reason, Ottawa would probably get outsized attention because you're going to have more opportunities for you know, those 20-year government leases in the office space. And then, of course, the steady employment that comes with that for the other asset classes. Yeah, so I mean, Ottawa, for sure, just size-wise, volume-wise, there's been a conversation. And the type of real estate they can offer to investors is particularly appealing too. Yeah, and good demographics. You know, a couple of universities that are strong. Like, there's just a whole bunch of nice, good things to like about it. So, I totally get why Ike is so bullish on uh, Ottawa in general and apartments, of course, to boot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, Purview now is, you know, on a national basis, but for the longest time, I've known him as an Ottawa guy. So, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about that. I guess, you know, since we uh, did record with him, and for total transparency, we are recording this a little bit after we had our chance to sit down with Ike. Big deal was inked out, out in Ottawa. You want to uh, go over the details? Yeah. Well, and I don't know much other than I, I mean, I saw it flash across my you know newsreel was that the Ottawa senators have been awarded land at the Breton Flats to build an arena. Because right now where that arena is for that Ottawa senators team, is just out in the middle of nowhere and hard to get to and takes forever to get in and out of when you're driving. And this new location would be, you know, center ice, pun intended, which is great, which is such a boon. And we see it in every jurisdiction. You're, you're in my hometown in Toronto having, you know, both the major sports teams or all three of the major sports teams playing right downtown. It just really does drive a lot of the vibrancy in the neighborhood. And I think that's a great thing. This is the Breton Flats isn't exactly right downtown, but certainly it's center of the city and easy to get to by public transportation and driving, et cetera. So what a great win for that city to finally get that you know major well it is their only north american sports franchise to a much better location for the fans well yeah and vibrancy is totally correct and it will create its own gravity around its around the development when it does go up because you know you could be tough to rhyme off more than a handful of things more impactful in terms of a real estate development changing a neighborhood than an arena going in it's always a you know a completely transformative experience for yeah, everybody they decide to go. Yeah. And I'm sure there's gonna be condos built around it, all sorts of you know, mixed use retail. It has a major impact and it, it is fantastic for that city. As and as Ike already alluded to, it already had a whole bunch of great things going for it. So here's just one more thing since we recorded with them. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for the episode today. A little, uh, a little shorter, but I hope you did enjoy you know, Ike's insight on uh, a few different markets. And you know, I did also it uh, was a little, a little heartening at the end to hear why you know we can sleep a little easier with real estate in these turbulent times. So thanks for everybody for listening to the end, and we'll see you in the next one. Thanks, everyone. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. 
First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.